sure love you both and thank you for that. Nehemiah chapter number one is where we're going to be tonight. Nehemiah, uh, we're going through uh, this series called The Blueprint of Prayer, uh, dear, looking at different prayers in the Bible. And tonight we're going to uh, probably, well, I can guarantee we're not going to get through this whole uh, eight-point lesson tonight. Um, my wife and I were talking about it beforehand, and she said, yeah, probably we don't need to do all eight tonight. So, uh, so based on her recommendation, we're going to make this at least a two-part message. Uh, but uh, I was already thinking about that anyway before she said that. Uh, Nehemiah chapter number one. Uh, we're going to read all 11 verses of this uh, chapter tonight, all 11 verses. Um, I know we've already stood for the singing, but if you would not mind, since this is a, a very special passage of Scripture, if you would join me in standing for the reading of this uh, passage, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, 1 through 11 says this, The words of Nehemiah the son of Hekeliah, and it came to pass in the month uh, Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Han- Hananiah, one of, the, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. When it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him, and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, before the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. And have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, Yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants, and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power, and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Lord, we do thank you for the service thus far. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, in this place with these people. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts from your word tonight. Help us, Lord, to uh, learn lessons from this prayer uh, of Nehemiah. 
And uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. National revival is always sparked by a solitary prayer. Now, obviously, it will take more than a single flame to bring about this revival. But a single flame is all God needs to get it started. Uh, When we lived in Montana, uh, we often joked that we had two seasons there. Uh, A lot of times we would say it's winter and the 4th of July. Uh, And those were the two seasons in Montana. Actually, the truth of the matter is, and we said this too when we lived up there, there are two seasons, there's winter and fire season. Because what would initially happen, or inevitably happen, there is during the, uh, the early summer months, uh, there would be uh, those thunderstorms that would come across, and that lightning would strike some very dry, uh, it was extremely dry there in Montana, and uh, those lightning bolts would strike some very dry uh, ground and, and trees that had been uh, fallen over, uh, and so all these all these different uh, wildfires would take place. And when we lived there, during those three and a half years we were there, there was a summer that fires ended up burning thousands and thousands of acres of forest there in Montana and did so for weeks. Uh, and we often joked, not joked, but lamented at how uh, the news would cover everything except for those Montana uh, fires that uh, were really causing a lot of smoke that would cover the entire state the entire state. Uh, Well, all of those obviously started with just one spark, and those wildfires took place. Uh, One little flame is all it took, and then it began to spread. And such is the case with National Revival as well. There's a book uh, uh, written by uh, Dr. Getch um, that uh, the men just, we went through his book, Uh, on uh, spiritual warfare and just completed that last month. But uh, he wrote a book uh, some years ago called 21st Century Revival, Is It Possible? And in that book, he shares some stories of revivals that took place in the past. And uh, one that uh, he talked about took place in the mid-1800s. And uh, he says this, "A, a businessman named... Lamphere quietly began a noontime prayer meeting in the lecture room of the North Reformed Dutch Church in Lower Manhattan on September 23rd, 1857. So a little prayer, a little prayer meeting at noon. Well, the first week, six men attended. The next week, the number increased to 20, and the third week to 40. By October... These meetings, which had started out weekly, were now being held daily. And by January, a second room was added to accommodate the crowd. And by February, a third room was needed. By this time, similar meetings were being conducted in other parts of the city so that the Daily Tribune on February 10th, 1858, just a few months after it started, reported this. Soon the striking of the five... Bells at 12 o'clock will generally be known as the hour of prayer. Well, in mid-March, Burton's Theater, capable of holding 3,000, was crowded for a prayer meeting. And by April, scores of buildings, including printer shops, fire stations, and police stations, were open for prayer meetings at noon. 
This necessitated a weekly bulletin being pub published with information on the location of these uh, simultaneous gatherings. By 1858, unconverted visitors began attending these meetings out of curiosity and in search of consolation. Soon, conversion after conversion was reported. By June, figures of 50,000 conversions in New York and 200,000 all across the Northeast were reported. Interest in religion was at an all-time high. Though money was scarce, religious books were sold at an unprecedented rate. The publisher of Spurgeon's Sermons said he sold 100,000 copies in 1858. As we stated earlier, no history has been written of this awakening, and so the total number of converts is unsure, but some put that number at 300,000 people, while others estimated 1 million. And it can all be traced to someone having a passion for prayer. Well, uh, most of us remember what uh, God says in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. Remember that? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and, what's the next one? Pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. As we consider Second Chronicles 7.14, and we consider uh, what took place in the book of Nehemiah, and most of us are fairly uh, familiar with uh, what ended up happening here with Nehemiah, how that he saw the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and he, under, he knew that that happened. And uh, it burdened him so much that uh, he wanted to do something about it. And 52 days after they started the building project, those walls were completed. And uh, as a result, uh, revival uh, swept the land. And it all comes back to Nehemiah chapter 1 and one man getting on his face, on his knees before the God of heaven and it really can be traced to this little flame, this little spark that this prayer started the uh, national revival that took place in, uh, in that day. As we look at our own country, obviously, there's a need for national revival, isn't there? Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't very, take very long to look at the news to see all that's going on and all that's happening right now to understand that we need to get back to God. Uh, how's that going to happen? Well, we need to do more protests. Uh, we need to do more social media posts. I'm not saying that those are bad or wrong or uh, a complete waste of time. I'm not saying that. But what we need to do, first and foremost, is to get on our knees. That's where it's going to start. It's going to start if God's people will humble ourselves. that got to eliminate our pride. And even us believers, uh, we need to make sure that we are uh, not living in pride and that we have a humility of heart. But then we also need to get on our knees and pray like Nehemiah did here in Nehemiah chapter number 1. And so we see this Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 played out uh, with Nehemiah. And so just uh, several thoughts here from this chapter that... I wanted us to consider tonight, and again, we won't get through all of them. I will probably finish it up next Wednesday night. But number one, first of all, we see from this passage that it's important for us to reflect on your situation, to reflect on your situation. And Nehemiah was willing to do this. Now, 
most of us understand that Nehemiah, his, his career, his vocation, his job, he was the cupbearer of the king. And so uh, basically, it was a pretty sweet job with a lot of bennies. He had a lot of perks, but there was one serious con that uh, was true about his job. He got to eat all the, all the king's food before the king got to eat it. And you know the king got to eat some pretty uh, wonderful meals. I mean, this wasn't just, you know, uh, bread and cornflakes, you know. I mean, he got to eat, you know, steak and lobster, ribeye, cooked medium with some extra A1 sauce on the side. That's what he got to eat. Uh, he got to eat uh, uh, probably some hideaway pizza as well. I'm just trying to think of some of the good food around here. I didn't eat dinner tonight, so I'm kind of hungry. So um, uh, we're going to kind of spend a little extra time talking about food for a little bit. Well, ne- Nehemiah got to enjoy all the king's food, which was a pretty sweet job, except for the fact if someone wanted to kill the king, they would put poison in it. And that's why Nehemiah was there, so that if Nehemiah... It, it, if there was poison, Nehemiah would die before the king died. And uh, so he kind of took the bullet for the king, so to speak. And uh, he got to eat all kinds of things, and, and uh, it, was a, it was a pretty cool job. But he was busy in that. Uh, he had, uh, you don't get to be the, cups, or the king's cupbearer by just being some random guy that's picked out of the audience. There, there's a lot of trust there, and obviously uh, Nehemiah had uh, earned that position. And, uh, and he was in that, and he was busy doing it. And yet he still takes time to consider the status of his country. In uh, verse number 2, one of, the, uh, one, of, one of his brethren, one of these Jews, escapes. Um, and it says in verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped. And, uh, and I was just kind of asking how they were doing. And then in verse 3, the news was not good. The remnant that are left of the captivity, they're in great affliction and reproach. Like things are not good. And then he says, and the wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down. The gates burn with fire. They were torched. So he, he took notice of what he cared about what was going on. And, and, and he really cared, and you can see how much he cared in verse number four. And it came to pass when I heard these words, he didn't go blow it off and say, oh, yeah, I keep hearing about how bad it is out there. No, he said, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Um, he was willing to really reflect on the honest situation that uh, his homeland was in. This requires a, a long, honest assessment of the situation you're in, too. Uh, it's a good thing for us to take call some timeouts in our busy, busy lives so we can really assess how things are going, to really reflect on the situation of our life. The truth of the matter is, we're not going to really improve unless we take the time to reflect on our situation and learn that there is a need to change. And this applies to every aspect of our life. Obviously, it applies to our nation, uh, but it doesn't take us very long to assess that we need revival, that we need to change. 
but it also applies to our own spiritual life. When was the last time you really kind of took inventory of your spiritual life and say, Lord, how am I doing with you? How is my walk with God really going? When was the last time you really took time to reflect on your situation when it comes to your spiritual walk? What about your own marriage? When was the last time you kind of thought about your marriage and say, where are we and what, what direction are we headed in our marriage? Especially I'm talking to the husbands here because we are supposed to be uh, the head of the home and we are supposed to lead our lives spiritually. Have, when was the last time we, we took some time to really kind of assess how our marriage is and, and where we're going and where we're headed? What direction are we pointing what about uh, our family life and the spiritual uh, health and condition of our family? How are we doing in that regard? And again, when was the last time you really reflected on your situation, your financial status? Uh, when was the last time you really kind of took a look at your finances and figured out, okay, where are we at? Where are we headed uh, financially? I know we get busy living life that sometimes it's really hard to stop and consider where we're at and where we're headed. Uh, but I want to remind us tonight that God did not create us to be ostriches. Okay? Let them put their head in the sand because that's what they were created to do. But uh, we instead are not called to put our head in the sand and pretend like everything's just hunky-dory all the time. Uh, we are called to be aware of what's going on around us. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 5 says this, ye are, all, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And then he says, Paul does, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day... Be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul says, look, uh, there's a lot of people that are just kind of asleep and not really aware of what's going on around them. And uh, I mean, I am, once I fall asleep, I'm a pretty good sleeper. I've got my fan blowing on me, and uh, I mean, I just, I sleep well. How many of you are good sleepers in that way, would you raise your how many of you are like light sleepers and a little tink, a little noise wakes you up? You have those mama ears. Okay, all the moms. Okay, and Brother Tom uh, raised his hand. Okay, he's uh, not a mama. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my, my wife has mama ears, and so she'll wake up pretty much for, for anything. Um, and uh, I, I just am asleep. Now, now here Paul's saying, look, Let's not sleep as do others. Uh, let us watch and be sober because we as God's people need to be aware of what's going on around us. Now, do we need to be consumed with what's going on around us? And uh, just like, well, I've got to watch the news 24-7. No, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say here. But uh, we do need to just have a, a healthy understanding of, of what's going on around us in our own personal lives, in our family, in our church, in our uh, community and in our nation, we need to be aware. And uh, when Nehemiah took the time to do that and really reflect on his situation, it really bothered him. 
It bothered him. Now, as you consider the condition of your spiritual walk, uh, obviously our country, does it bother you? I think if we all uh, refer to our country, I, I think all of us would say, yeah, I mean, the direction we're going as a nation, I mean, you look at, you look at Lot, you remember the story of Lot and how he pitched his tent toward Sodom? And then it wasn't long before he's in Sodom, and then, and then he's at the, sitting at the gate among the elders in Sodom. And, uh, I mean, it just the, the regression that takes place in, in Lot's life because of that one decision to pitch his tent toward Sodom. You think about our nation in that regard. We have pitched our, you know, years ago we pitched our tent toward Sodom. And then it wasn't long before we're in Sodom, and now it's going to almost be to the point where you can't preach against sodomy without it being considered a hate crime. Does, does that bother you? I think, I think all of us would say, yeah, it, it bothers me. Well, does it bother you enough to cause us to weep, to mourn, to fast, and to pray? Because that's how bad it bothered Nehemiah. In verse number four, it came to pass when I heard these words, I was so bothered that I sat down and I wept and I mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We got to stop having our heads in the sand and pretending like, well, it just is what it is. Uh, let's just move on and I'm enjoying my life. Uh, that's not the way Nehemiah handled it. He took it personally and, uh, and it bothered him so much that it moved him to some action. And this is what led to that little spark, that little flame that God was able then to use to bring about national revival. Okay, so number one, we need to reflect on our situation. Number, number two, we need to recognize who can help. We, can, we need to recognize who can help. Now, again, most of us understand that Nehemiah rebuilt these walls, but it wasn't him alone that did it, right? And Nehemiah needed help to accomplish this rebuilding effort. If you recall, he needed the king's help. He worked for a man by the name of King Artaxerxes. And that's found in chapter 2 and verse 1. He needed the king's help. He needed the king's permission. He needed also the king's uh, financial help. And uh, just some practical help that he gave. So he needed the king's help. He also needed Asaph's help in getting the necessary materials. If you look at uh, chapter 2 and verse number 8. Here was a letter that the king sent unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter in. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So he needed the king's help. He needed Asaph's help to get all the materials together. He also needed the help of the captains of the army and horsemen to escort him back to the capital city of Judah. Verse 9, I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So uh, Nehemiah needed some serious help. That wasn't all, though. He also needed the Jews to help. Once he got there, he needed them to come and help actually do the work. He couldn't do it by himself. 
So he needed the rulers, he needed the priests, the nobles, and the other workers to help actually do the work of rebuilding. But before, listen to this, but before he thought about any of these human beings that he needed eventually to help him accomplish this, he recognized who, and I capitalized who, it was that he needed most. Did he need all these people? Yes. But who did he need most? He needed the Lord most. And that's why in the end of verse 4 he says, uh, I sat down, wept, mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah didn't immediately go and you know, panic and start going to the king and say, Oh, my homeland is a mess and I need your help. No, no, no. See, Nehemiah first understood that before I need men, I need God. See, many times when we face a problem that is bigger than us, our first reaction is to go to other people around us to help. Look, it's not wrong to ask others for help. But only after we have gone to the Lord first. It's not wrong to go to the doctor when you're sick. But have you prayed about it first? Have you gone to the Lord first before you immediately go, oh, I need to go to the doctor? Uh, but see, in our Americanized Christianity, that's what we are trained to do. We're sick. Go to the doctor. Forget the Lord. Um, you know, I've got a financial need. I've got to figure out. I've got I to go get a new credit card and put it on credit. You see, we, we have it all figured out instead of going to the Lord first. I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to the doctor. It's good to do that, but make sure that you go to the Lord, the one who can help the most. Remember, he's the great physician. Sometimes we forget that and we say, no, 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 Dr. So-and-so uh, down the street, he's my physician. Uh, let's get back to remembering that God is our great physician. And uh, certainly after we pray, the Lord can direct our steps to uh, perhaps uh, a human doctor that can help us with our ailments. But do you see the order of it? Usually uh, we seek men's help before we seek God's help. And only when men can't help, that's when we're then brought before the Lord. But see, Nehemiah, his first reaction was to pray before not a human king, but the king of kings. And that needs to be our heartbeat as well. Not wrong to go to the doctor. Not wrong to go to a lawyer when there's a, uh, an issue. They're not wrong to go to the pastor for marital counseling and, and uh, for, for help with an issue. Not wrong to go to a friend. But uh, and, and, and look, these people are here to help. But uh, we need to make sure that we go to God first. And Nehemiah did that. He recognized who can really help. Psalm 63 in verse number 7 says, Because thou... And he's not talking to a person, he's talking to God. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Psalm 70 and verse number 5. I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarrying. A lot of times American Christians, I think, would say, uh, the doctor is my help. Uh, instead of God is our help. 
Uh, let's, let's remember to go to the Lord first. Psalm 121, verse 2. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Can I remind us this, this evening that he helped us with our very greatest need? which was salvation from sin and the penalty of our sin, which was in eternity in the lake of fire. Why then do we think we don't need to come to him for our other needs? We don't need to bother him. He's kind of busy, you know, bringing salvation to other people. No, he, he is, if he's able to do that, he can help with the other things. The other things are cake and easy for him. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And yet we kind of say, uh, I can handle this on my own. Now, Nehemiah, no doubt about it, was helped practically by King Artaxerxes. He was helped by Asaph and the army and the Jews. But it was only after Nehemiah went to the Lord first and that the Lord opened all those doors for those people to help. Had he not gone to the Lord first, I don't know that King Artaxerxes would have been compelled to help Nehemiah the way he did. I don't know that all the... Uh, Armies would have helped, the, the, the captains of the army would have helped Nehemiah get to where he was safely. I don't know if all of those allowances would have been there had Nehemiah not gone to the Lord first. But because he did, God opened all those doors. So recognize who can help. Who can really help? And uh, certainly, you know, there's, a, there's great resources around us, but instead of going to them first, Let's go to the greatest resource of them all, which is the Lord. All right, number three. Uh, regard God's character. So here, and, and all those thoughts are before even prayer, really. Uh, Nehemiah finally, he, he reflects on his situation. He understands there's a big need. And then he recognizes who can really help. And he, instead of going to the Lord last, like, a lot of Ameri American Christians, and I put myself in that same boat because a lot of times I'm tempted to go to the Lord only when I've exhausted all the other avenues. Um, he sought the Lord first. And uh, so he, uh, you know, he reflected on a situation, he recognized who could really help, and then he begins his prayer in verse number five. And his first part of his prayer is regarding God's character. Let's read verse five. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Uh, this very much reminds me of the model prayer in Matthew chapter number six that we just got done studying. Remember the Lord, as he begins that prayer before it, he goes into his laundry list of needs it's a time of regarding who God is. And that's what Nehemiah does here in verse number five. He, 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 just like Jesus taught us, Nehemiah spends the first moments in his prayer regarding the character of God. He doesn't go immediately into his wish list. You see, there, instead, there's a time of adoration and praise. Okay, what does he say in verse number five? He says, O Lord God of heaven. He's remembering... Uh, very similar to what Jesus taught us in the model prayer, uh, our Father, which art in heaven. Um, and, and that's basically what he's saying here. Um, to, re to be reminded of who God is. And then he says in verse number five, the great and terrible God. 
And we see the word terrible and we're like, God's not terrible. He's great. He's good. You know, when you get a, when you eat lima beans, when I eat lima beans, I'm like, that's terrible. Okay, it's, it's a different usage of the word terrible here. It, it doesn't mean it's, it's bad. It means that it's terrifying almost. God is so great and he's so big and powerful and uh, he, res- he deserves all kinds of reverence and adoration. Psalm 72, here's another reference for you regarding the great and terrible God. It says, For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. And the meaning here is that he is worthy of profound reverence or adoration. He absolutely deserves our reverence. He absolutely deserves our adoration. So the great and terrible God... And then he says, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. I'm going to ask you to kind of keep your finger here in Nehemiah, but go back to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, that is uh, the Ten Commandments chapter. This is where we find the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And... uh, Verse number one, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any, unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And verse number six, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so verse number six of chapter 20, and then go back to Nehemiah, verse number five. You're a God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. So there's a reference there back to the Ten Commandments. Uh, back to who God is and what God has promised. He is a faithful God. He does keep his covenant. Um, He's never going to not keep his covenant. He's never going to break it. And he keeps mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. So, uh, and then then, uh, Nehemiah in verses 7 on down really kind of gets into a little bit uh, more of, well, verses 7 and 8. Uh, Well, he really doesn't get into the asking until verse number 11, to be honest. Now, here's the deal. So before we go rushing into God's presence asking for things, let's take a moment to regard God's character, to regard who he is. Take some time to think about who you are praying to. Yes, he has indeed invited us to come boldly into the throne room to find grace to help in time of need. But remember the significance of that place and who occupies the throne. Now imagine if you received an invitation, and and I realize that it kind of, it sort of depends on who resides there. But imagine being invited to come to the Oval Office. Even in this current administration, 
and uh, you were invited to come, and, and uh, you, had, you had 30 minutes to go into the Oval Office and talk with the uh, President of the United States. Now, obviously, hopefully he has a teleprompter, because I don't know if he's going to really be able to communicate well with you without one. Uh, but the point is, when you wa- would you walk in there, you know, uh, just all non, you know, flippantly, and like you would walk into your bathroom at home? I, I think you would treat it a little bit differently, right? Because this is the Oval Office. This is a special place in our country, really in our world. This is where the most powerful man. Uh, and it's kind of hard to say this with a straight face right now, uh, uh, where, where, he, where he sits, okay? And he decrees things and sees signs so many executive orders that he promised he wouldn't, and on and on it goes, okay? But this is a very powerful place. You wouldn't just waltz in there and, you know, nonchalantly. No, 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 that's not the way it works. And, and I'm not saying we need to, you know, we would treat that that invitation very very uh, we'd be uh, very we would cherish that invitation we would value it and we would think about how we would approach that that time we would prepare our thoughts we would you know what, what am I going to say I've got thirty minutes what am I going to say to to the most powerful man in the world well can I remind us uh, we have been invited to the throne room of God the most powerful being in the universe by a long shot, infinitely more powerful than the one who resides in the Oval Office. How do we approach that? Do we just kind of waltz right in? See, Nehemiah didn't just waltz right in and say, hey, Lord, I need some things. You got to do what I tell you to because, you know, that's what your your job is. No, 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 that's not the way Nehemiah... Uh, approached it at all. He, he spent some time in verse 5 recognizing and uh, regarding who God is. It's very important for us as we pray, as we begin our prayer, to take a moment and remember who God is. Jesus taught us to do the same thing. Uh, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There, there's a time to think about who we're talking to. And, uh, and, and Nehemiah follows that example here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. There's more, uh, obviously, we only got through verse number five. There's more to it. We'll cover next week, but uh, we'll go ahead and stop there tonight. Um, and uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, I'll look at some prayer requests.